Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Jennifer Cabani. Jennifer is the editor of The College Fix. She previously worked as a daily newspaper reporter and columnist for a decade in Southern California. And prior to that, held editorial positions at the Weekly Standard, Washington Times, and Front Page Magazine. She's also a Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship recipient. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about this question? I think when you talk to people like folks at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, like a Greg Lukianoff type of person, they seem to think the current discourse around college censorship is, I don't want to say overblown in any sense, but it's something that maybe lacks historical perspective and that this has been a phenomenon since the 90s and earlier, that college censorship and free speech issues on college campuses have been a problem. I don't know if they have a perspective on whether it's massively increased or decreased or stayed the same. What do you think? Have those instances of censorship on college campuses increased, decreased, or stayed the same since, say, the 1990s? Well, I think it's fair to say that, sure, there's always been some level of of censorship on college campuses, but it's never been as bad as it is today. It is the worst right now in this moment in history. And that is due to cancel culture and the victim mentality, people, you know, using ad hominem attacks instead of, you know, using logic and the Socratic method to have what used to be very classical liberal education where people could have a back and forth and disagree with each other, but still respect each other. But now I think I just think it's so polarized on campus and it's probably it feels like it's at its worst. What are the worst instances of conservative censorship in higher education or public education generally? Well, there's there's a couple of different kind of forms because, you know, if a student wants to, say, write an essay that may disagree with their professor or, you know, speak up in class, I mean, they might be jeopardizing their grades, their GPA. Um, so that's a dangerous type of, of censorship because it's very insidious and it's not very obvious, but they, they're, keep, they're choosing to stay silent because they don't want to ruin their GPA. Um, and when we've done surveys that students have told us, yes, we will lie on an essay or not debate our professor because we do we don't want our grade doc. So there's that aspect of it. I'm asking specifically, are there is that a instance that you would see with a liberal professor or a conservative professor? Like are there instances of folks on who are more conservative participating in this sort of same silencing of speech? No, because I think conservatives understand the importance of that give and take and and value debate and people holding different opinions and free speech and liberty. Surveys will show if it's conservative students keeping their mouths shut in liberal professors' classrooms. Uh, this is you know this is massive amounts of data. Our own surveys, as well as some that have been done by by fire too. But uh, no, it's it's really not the conservatives. Now look. Once in a while, yes, there are some examples of, of you know, center-right students playing the same game, you know, playing the cancel culture game, but it's, it's few and far between. And then, and then in addition to the classroom problem, then you have the social and peer-to-peer pressure. We just had an article in the College Fix. Matt Walsh was at the University of Illinois, and he's basically saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and that is a controversial statement on a college campus today. I mean, there was protesters outside chanting, stomping, and basically saying his presence oppressed them. Is that a problem in your view, if students were to protest a speaker? Or is it simply that they're asking the speaker not be there? 
No, I, I, it's absolutely not a problem to protest as long as they don't block the entrance or try to, to shout down the speaker. Or there's also kind of like a heckler's veto. veto. Well, there are uh, many, many instances where students have kind of taken up all the seats in the, in the auditorium. And then as soon as the speaker starts, so people were like turned away. And then as soon as the speaker starts, they'll all get up and, you know, make some loud noise and blah, blah, blah. And, and then they'll leave. And all the people who had wanted to get in already left. So those kinds of protests are, I think, illegitimate forms of protest. But no, I think um, in general, just protesting, holding signs and even chanting to a certain extent is fine, as long as they're not trying to shout down the speaker um, so that it can't take place. So I had an interesting conversation with some. I went to a very progressive college, Tufts University in Boston. And I spoke with a political science professor recently who left there and started teaching at a different institution. I asked him why he left. And he said when he thought about it, Tufts did not have a reason really to exist at all. Primarily educating wealthier students. There's a bunch of institutions like it. It's extraordinarily expensive. There is some level of prestige that comes from it, but not you know, in any serious sense, much more than many similar smaller institutions across the country. And it makes me want to ask you a question about, do you think those institutions will persist or where do you see the biggest paradigm shifts in the next, say, 10, 20 years in higher ed? Well, for the last decade, we've been talking about the higher education bubble and, and when and if it'll burst. Um, mm-hmm. It's more like a slow leak. You know, it's like it is deflating, but it's 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 really taking its time. We can't live without college football and we can't live without college basketball. Colleges will always be there, right? I mean, this is America and we, we need our sports. And well, I, I but you look, like at, sports. Say, look at like a country like Ireland or something. Those They have very, very robust amateur sports that is not tied to someone's college. Now, I'm saying this as a Midwesterner who didn't go to a Big Ten school, so <laughs> I'm very privileged in this. And maybe me saying this is totally <laughs> heresy to anyone in, with an SEC school. But we can imagine a future where maybe those two things are disintegrated, right? I, we can imagine a future, but I, it's it's far in the future because everybody loves their college football. I, I call it the sports industrial complex, right? So we'll we'll have that. But but I will say this: right now, you can take classes online from some of the best minds through the internet, and so where the old model was based on before technology, you know, there's before the internet and after the internet. So at what point are parents and students willing? to go 10, you know, 30, 50, a hundred thousand dollars in debt when all that information is literally at your fingertips. So what you're really paying for is the experience, the college experience. So are you going to send your kids to a freshman, even to a state school? Most of them force you, force you, force the student to live on, on campus their first two years in the dorms, et cetera. Even if you're on a scholarship, an academic scholarship, that's still 30 grand. If you want to pay for the experience, at least know what you're paying for. Because right now there's a lot of avenues to get a great education online. And I think that's going to be the biggest disruptor of higher education is is how technology is going to make it more accessible and less exclusive. I mean, again, there's, there's professors that have posted their classes on Harvard, Yale, you know, Stanford, Princeton. I mean, we, they're, everything you could want to know is literally at our fingertips at this point. I can't imagine that won't have a profound impact as we continue to see technology advancing. But to your point earlier, which is that we've had this discussion for 10 years. And I mean, I remember I entered college in 2010 and this was a major thing. Is there any evidence that at the margin, people are using other paths to higher education rather than taking taking on debt? Or is that 
trend continuing? Do we see any signs actually in people's revealed preferences in their behavior that the model, that there's a big threat to the model? Or has it, has it actually not happened yet, even at the margin? I'm going to use the term like trickling, slowly deflating. I think more and more people are waking up on the return in, on investment angle and choosing vocational schools or choosing to maybe just start at the community college and then transfer, maybe going into the military, trying some entrepreneurial things first. I think there's more and more people who are like, why not? For so long, for decades, really, the mantra was, if you don't go to a four-year college right out of high school, basically your life is going to suck. And I think more and more people are saying, you know what, I don't buy that. I don't buy that anymore, both parents and students. Uh, but it's just not happening as fast. And I, I got to mention again, I mean, the experience on campus is what kids want. And then also the idea that jobs want to see students with a BA. And it's not even like knowledge base. It's just like, okay, we know you can accomplish something because you earned your BA. It's like proving your worth just by having the BA. They're not even wondering what you actually learned. I'm curious what you think about this phenomenon. Over the last 20 years, there's been this extraordinary sorting effect on a partisan basis in that rapidly increasingly, and it seems to have solidified, college educated people sort into Democratic Party voters and folks with uh, high school education or below sort into being Republican voters. And it's become a big, it's perhaps most evident in the fact that I think in the 80s, you had something like 20 plus percent of marriages being interpartisan. And now that number is in the low single digits, I think, in the United States. It doesn't strike me that there's a radical difference in the number of Democratic professors now in colleges versus the 90s. What do you think most accounts for that? It's always been dominated by Democrats, 10 to 1, 20 to 1. 30 to 1 in many departments, but they're more radical now. You know, the, the, the old guard is kind of retired and, and the new young guard are taking over and they're far more radical than their predecessors. But you have to keep in mind that, you know, we're seeing a lot of this, what we're seeing on campuses manifest themselves now as, as thanks to these new professors who are feeding these ideas into young people's minds, that they are oppressed and that they are a victim uh, and that everything is systemic racism. Uh, this is something that we hear over and over and over again on college campuses and that you didn't where really need that, to 20 years ago. Where does that reveal itself in the data, though? How are we to measure that? You know, say the I mean, at University of Wisconsin in the 70s, there were bombings from radical Marxists at the school. And there's architecture there that stands today because of that. That's not something we see today on college campuses. So I, I mean, I understand I'm not even really challenging necessarily the idea that maybe the ideology has changed over time. But what would we see in data to suggest that there's more radicalism now among college campuses to the point where people are sorting into different party preferences than there were in the, the 80s or 90s? I have something on the College Fixes website. It's called the Campus Cancel Culture Database. And we literally counted every example of censorship, memory holing, you know, mascots being canceled, statues being yanked, pictures being covered up, professors being shadowed down, disinvited, honorary degrees being revoked, student groups being with, you know, refused, you know, funding, money, all of those things in the last 10 years. And, um, you know, over 1,500 examples of this, whether they were, you know, successful cancellations or attempted cancellations, we've quantified that to illustrate, you know, just how big this problem has begun. So 
you're right. I can't think of a, of a bombing on campus recently, but I can think of 500 professors who, who have their careers ruined because they said the wrong thing. What is the difference between an instance of cancel culture and just an instance of evolving opinion in a good direction? So for example, when you talk about mascots, right? I would think that not all mascot changes are created equal. I can think of some, you know, truly horrific mascots in, in American history that have changed. Perhaps we wouldn't call that cancel culture. Where would you draw that line? I'm hesitant to, you know, say that. Well, so, you know, some cancel culture is good, some cancel culture is bad. I, I mean, you every every university has a right to evolve, certainly, um, but you have to look at the motivation for changing it and what it's truly accomplishing whether it's just paying lip service, but, but at a deeper level, is it really changing who we are, what we founded on, what we believe? I mean, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So yeah, it might be a statue of a Confederate general, but you sure contextualize it, add, you know, a plaque describing the situation, but let's not forget where we were as a country and how far we've come by erasing our history. I guess what I'm thinking of on the mascot side is sort of, I, I live in Illinois. You mentioned the, the Matt Walsh event in Illinois. There's a community called Pekin in Illinois that is basically spelled like Peking, but without the G. And their mascot okay. was just literally a, a racial slur against Asian people. And they changed oh, it, it was. in the 80s. Oh, okay. And, and that for me, you know, right, that, that isn't really cancel culture. And the line there is interesting. I'm, I'm just, I was sort of curious on what you think there. But it, it is you don't look, No, no, look, I suppose there's, there's exceptions to the rule. And, and you, know, so, you know, sometimes people need to be, okay, that, that one's pretty, pretty gosh darn bad. So I, I'm not going to be an absolutist. I, I suppose there are exceptions to the rule, but I think in general, we should always err on the side of free speech, liberty, you know, remembering our past, not covering it up, not erasing it. Warts and all, you know, this is the greatest country in the world. That's why people risk their lives um, and give up everything to come here and, and go for the American dream. So uh, you know, I I know that we don't have a perfect past, and um, there's a lot that we can learn and grow still to this day. But we we should honor and remember and learn from, and not cover up and delete it. What would you say to people who say one of the greatest things about America is it's generally free market economics and it's unleashed this enormous amount of prosperity. If censorship is really a problem at the margin for a lot of people on college campuses. Ultimately, over time, the market will develop solutions for those people to pick somewhere else and people will just sort of be sorted into institutions that protect that versus not. You know, this is something that the market will solve. What would you say to those folks? Right now, I mean, we're having a problem with big tech deciding what can be news and, and what's not news, throttling stories it doesn't like canceling people's Twitter's account. I mean, the president of the United States kicked off both Facebook and Twitter, um, not former president, obviously, but I'm just saying like what we're seeing right now is the market isn't necessarily correcting itself when there's a monopoly on, on certain pathways of speaking. I guess that that concept can be applied to college campuses too, because students that do want to get a four-year degree and have a right to speak they're promised in this literature on the website in the school pamphlets, you know, we, we honor free speech, we honor, you know, your constitutional rights, et cetera. But when you, when you, when they get there, the first thing they learn at freshman orientation is a list of words they should avoid saying. 
and how they shouldn't, you know, they should think before they say anything, lest they offend their fellow peer. And by the way, here's this bias response team. So maybe they were, it was false advertising, right? They thought they were getting something that they're not, but they're already at the institution. So there's the, the growing big tech censorship. There's the universities giving false advertising. So it's, a, it's kind of a complex problem and there's no easy answer to that. But for those who are well-informed and understand these issues going in as an 18 year old, hope, you know, they can choose certain colleges. There's a bunch of different colleges around the nation um, where, you know, they refuse federal funding and they stand for free speech. And you know that you're going to get a well-rounded classical liberal education there. But sometimes you're 18, you're 19, you don't, you don't know that going in until you're already there, unless your parents are super involved in the day-to-day news and understand what's going on as well. But yes, I am actually a big believer in the free market. Um, and, I, and I do think it finds solutions, but might be some growing pains before we get there. What would be the biggest difference in the day-to-day lives of people who are you know, post-college age if every single higher education institution in the country adopted what I think is maybe still the gold standard. You can disagree. The University of Chicago rules for speech on campus. What what difference would people see day to day, not on college campuses? The problem is the university has got to adhere to, if they adopt the principles, see plenty of universities have actually adopted the Chicago principles and then act contrary to what they, they say they, they're going to do. So we have a problem right say now they, where say they adopt them and they obey them. Oh, so this is a deep hypothetical question, really. <laughs> you know, I feel that we would have a better chance of vetting bad ideas um, in, in the public arena. Uh, people would be more willing to, you know, sort of try things out. And there would be a general sense of um, honesty and less virtue signaling. Um, I think it would just help foster an atmosphere of freedom and liberty where we understand that everybody has rights and they have the right to speak and they have the right to be there and they have the right to exist, whether you disagree with them or not. It would just foster an understanding that you can be here and I can be here and we can both disagree, but I don't have to be convinced or be forced to be convinced of your opinion and your, your thoughts. See, what I think, unfortunately, that the left is doing right now is they're like, it's not enough that you disagree with us, but you can't vocalize that disagreement. So I guess hypothetically, if the, you know, if the Chicago principles were acted out and and the left learned, no, people have a right to say what they want. Maybe there would be more freedom of speech um, in the nation right now. Maybe big tech wouldn't be censoring as horribly as they do. Maybe politics would be less, well, I don't know. I don't, I'm kind of like, I'm, am I going to go down the Trump road or whatever? <laughs> but part of the thing that I think initially attracted people to Trump, right, was he said whatever he wanted, as, as ridiculous and as horrible kind of sometimes as it was. And people like appreciated that that refreshing like, oh, my God, this guy's just going to say whatever he wants and whatever's on his mind and like him or hate him. You know, that got him elected. Right. It's just, just frank sort of like taking on everything that everything that we thought we held dear, what polite society, whatever. So the pendulum's kind of swung way over there. Right. 
Whereas maybe it wouldn't have swung so far that way if we just were brought up understanding that, you know, people can say what they want and it doesn't have to be a huge thing. And maybe we can all just have these disagreements in a civil manner. So you mentioned something earlier about government monopoly, and that's certainly the case in some higher education, right? Like it's a, it's a cartel in some ways because there's accreditation and the accreditation process is basically controlled by the existing players. So there's sort of a conflict of interest there. I don't think there's been a new public, I don't think there's been even a private new research university in the United States in the last hundred years. I'm not sure if there's even been one. But at the same time, you see that same dynamic play out in K-12 education. There's a monopoly. And certainly there are political actors, conservative political actors, who are able to control curriculum in a, in a monopoly, as are people on the left. And in both cases, it seems to me that fighting on the content of the speech angle is should maybe be secondary to fighting on the market angle, just let people have more options about what they can choose. What do you think about that perspective? Well, I'm all for school choice. I think we need more of it. I, I'm a big fan of vouchers. A lot of states we've been seeing are passing these laws where parents have the option of, of using um, different savings accounts to send their kids to you know, whatever school they want, whether it's a public charter school or a private school or a religious school. But you're, you're absolutely right in the sense that if these K-12 schools don't have any challenge they're gonna it's just gonna it just naturally breeds mediocrity um we, we need to pursue excellence through the value of competition and and then that is true in commerce as well as education and you know currently i i pay a certain amount of money every month to send my daughter to a private Christian school. I'm willing to, to do that. I, I, I'm grateful I have the choice, but it would sure be nice if I had a voucher and how many, you know, families out there wish that they had an option like I did, but they can't afford it. Well, it's not fair to them. You know, they're paying taxes, they're paying property taxes, let them take that money and send their kid to what, you know, it's not a one size all fits approach. You know, K-12 is very one size fits all and parents should have the, the right and the opportunity um, to, to choose the education pathway that, that their child would best benefit from. So I, I, I would hope and I support all school choice programs and things that politicians do to try to expand that because that's the way that you do let that free market work its magic and create better options for everybody and better students and better education as a result. Jennifer Cabani from The College Fix. Thanks for joining us and thanks for talking. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Those are challenging questions. I hope I rose to the occasion. 